This is NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 14. Today's guest is James Cockrell, project manager for small spacecrafts at NASA Ames. We discuss his early days at NASA, working on airborne infrared telescopes such as Sophia. We also discuss his current work on the CubeQuest Challenge program and how technology drives exploration. In fact, recently in the news, NASA just announced the creation of the Small Spacecraft Systems Virtual Institute, S3VI, which is designed to advance the field of small spacecraft systems throughout industry, academia, and government agencies. A more detailed description of the Institute is up on nasa.gov Ames, but we will also release an audio version on the podcast by the end of the week. Without any further delay, here is James Cockrell. Tell us about how, how you got to NASA, what brought you to Silicon Valley. How did you end up in this chair oh, man. in That's, California? That goes back a ways. I've been here my whole career, okay. which spans 30, 30, let's see, I started here in 82, okay. so it's 34 years now this October. Oh, wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I wasn't always a civil servant. I began as a contractor in 82. Okay. I answered an ad in the newspaper. You remember newspapers. I do remember newspapers. They, they're online now for the yeah. most part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was, you know, you ink know on paper your hands. with ink, right? I had, a, I had a paper, like, delivery job. You know, I was a paper boy at one point. So. I, was, uh, I was a paper boy. Hey. So um, I was an electrical engineer from Ohio State. I had a bachelor's of science in electrical engineering. Nice. Looking for work. And um, my sister lived in Berkeley, so I didn't. I was one of the few graduates from the School of Engineering that didn't have a job when, when okay. upon graduation. Eighty-two was a sort of a low slump slump year for uh, mm-hmm. uh, the Silicon Valley, and um, so they weren't really hiring fresh outs. And okay. I came out here looking for a job, and I started to shotgun my resume around cold calling to newspaper really? ads. Um, and I saw an ad for they were looking for a entry-level engineer to support an airborne telescope for infrared astronomy, which was intriguing because it combined the fact that I wanted to get a job in electrical engineering. Awesome. (laughs) And it was for NASA, supporting a NASA telescope. (laughs) And I was already interested in astronomy as, you know, just as a layperson because of a lifelong interest in looking up at the stars. So I answered that ad and went in and interviewed – it was the support service contractor for the Kuiper Airborne Observatory. Okay. Um, the KAO was the predecessor to Sophia. I was gonna. I was gonna say. I just met with Pamela, who talked about Sophia. Sure. Yeah. Like infrared telescope on a big old plane. Yeah. <laughs> so this was a 92 centimeter telescope in a C-141 troop transport plane. Wow. Uh, that goes to 41,000 feet and does infrared astronomy. Okay. And um, they called me back and they said they wanted me to work. (laughs) So I think it was because I asked for the least amount of money of any of the other (laughs) applicants. But I said, well, this will tide me over until I can get a job working for Apple or Intel or Motorola or something. Uh, And little did I know. It gets into your blood and you can't leave. (laughs) Because it was really interesting. The work on the KEO was... I was a, a supporting engineer for the telescope, but I got to okay. work because of that. 
that. I got to work in this telescope stabilization system. So I was working on controls. Okay. I got to work on the power distribution for the telescope, okay. video distribution, data acquisition systems. All of this which, stuff. Yeah. Uh, I built a star tracker for the telescope. Oh, wow. So it was always something new and interesting. It, there was never a dull moment. Yeah. Uh, plus they did infrared astronomy. So I got to rub elbows with the uh, PIs that came from universities to do look at things like the Galactic Center. They were mm -hmm. looking at star formation regions where there is intergalactic dust. Um, Completely different when you're doing it in infrared as opposed to like normal Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very different. And that's why you get up in, uh, above the, the, uh, the water vapor in the atmosphere. Yeah. Flying at 41,000 feet, you're in the stratosphere and you don't have the the absorption lines from the water vapor in the air. Okay. So you have to do it. Um, Gerard Kuiper was uh, mm -hmm. the groundbreaker. He was uh, for whom the observatory was named. Yeah. He was the guy who proposed putting a telescope in an airplane and wow. started out in the Learjet. They had a one, uh, 12 inch telescope in the Learjet. That was the predecessor to the KAO. <laughs> KAO flew for 25 years. I worked on the KAO for 12 years until mm -hmm. um, they decommissioned it to prepare uh, to work on SOFIA. And I worked on SOFIA for a little bit and then moved on to a different contract um, yeah ended up working on uh, an experiment uh, life sciences experiment for the space shuttle <laughs> um, and then at, just after that became it was offered a job as a civil servant in 2000 okay. So um, in 2000, I was working. This is a longer story than yeah, we have yeah. time for, but yeah, uh, it's work, great. I worked for two years on um, wiring issues with aging wiring on the space shuttle orbiters. Okay, they had they were big. The shuttle program by that time had been flying for over 15 years, and mm -hmm. they were starting to see wear and tear on the wiring okay. systems. So they were interested in building or finding ways that they could test the wiring in a non-invasive way. And we worked okay. on instruments for doing that, remote sensing of wiring defects. Wow. Uh, did that for two years, um, then went back to Sophia, uh, <laughs> did that for a few years. Um, and um, from there, uh, started working in small satellites. I got yeah. um, an offer to work on the EDSN project, okay. which was... Edison's demonstration of small satellite networks. So that was my first wow. job in these little tiny CubeSats. It's quite but, a path from like Ohio looking at a newspaper. <laughs> never a dull moment. There's so that's what's so great about working here at Ames is yeah. that you don't get you don't get pigeonholed into a niche where you're yeah, just doing you know working do. on the same widget yeah. you know uh, year after year. You get there's always something new and different. And if you're curious and interested, you can find something interesting to keep you occupied. You know so that's I, how you do a career at 34 <laughs> years at NASA is to keep moving around and finding new stuff. Wow. And so you'd mentioned like the small satellites. So for somebody who has no clue what are small sats or cube sats what is the bare bones like yeah. what is that so the CubeSat standard's been around for a few years it was proposed by a couple of professors at Cal Poly in uh, San Luis Obispo and uh, Stanford okay um, the idea was take a standard size mm -hmm. standard dimensions in this case a CubeSat a 1U sized CubeSat is 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters okay a cube so that's <laughs> how it got the term CubeSat so it's not just a clever name <laughs> right 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 and the idea is by standardizing that size and um, a way of storing and deploying these satellites from a launch vehicle 
you make them interchangeable. So okay. um, if uh, you're developing a, a one u sized CubeSat, it's got a standardized size and a standardized weight. Um, mm-hmm. And um, there happens to come a launch of opportunity because they've got surplus payload and they've already okay. got the dispenser attached to their launch vehicle. They can accommodate whatever satellite is available at okay. the time. So it's a great learning opportunity for students who may be from anywhere in the country building yeah. these standardized size satellites as a technology demonstrator. Um, and uh, that once a, a CubeSat is available for launch, there may be a launch opportunity uh, that can take advantage of yeah. flying that particular CubeSat. So, so it's not necessarily paying for the rocket to go up there, but it's able to take advantage of these payloads that are already going up. Exactly. Okay. Because if you were to pay as a primary payload, you're yeah. paying big bucks. You're calling the shots. <laughs> you're They're building exactly. and delivering the rocket for your benefit on yes. your timeline. But you're paying for that um, that luxury. Yeah. As a CubeSat with a standardized payload that's built in um, easy to build, they're interchangeable, you can take advantage of surplus mm-hmm. mass um, volume and mm-hmm. uh, capacity on a launch vehicle, you can oh, wow. take advantage of a variety of opportunity, not as a primary payload, but as a secondary payload. And, so and th- so sir, there are people who are building CubeSats all over the country. Um, it's becoming very popular. They're not limited to a 1U size. You can stack them up. Mm-hmm. Two 1U CubeSats makes what they call a 2U. 3U is a very common format where you've got three lined up in a row. Um, and um, the, as, uh, to give you an example of yeah. Since the growth of popularity, since um, the uh, 1990s, these were kind of uh, this was the first time people thought of CubeSats. Yeah. Last year, there were over a hundred CubeSats that oh, were wow. that were successfully launched. And How long do those stay in orbit? Or? Really depends on where the launch service provider is dropping you off. Okay. So you're kind of like a hitchhiker. You're getting a ride of opportunity. If okay. you happen to be on a um, space station resupply mission, okay. you're gonna be deployed in more or less the space station orbit, the space station altitude. So you're yeah. way outside of the Earth's atmosphere and you're gonna mm-hmm. last for a number you're of really years. You're really high up there. You're really high up there, so there's nothing. There's not that much drag to bring you down. Okay. If you are in a um, on a launch that happens to be of a lower altitude, and we're talking like mm-hmm. uh, a couple of hundred kilometers, let's say, you're okay. going to come down much faster, maybe in a matter of months, because there's more atmospheric drag. But as a secondary payload, you don't get a choice. You know, you may be. Um, <laughs> you take what you can get. You take what you can get. You're on a ride of opportunity, so you um, don't get to specify your altitude or yeah. even your time. Timeline of when you're going to be deployed, and these 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 payloads literally get sent up. I mean, for some of them, get sent up to the space station, and then the astronauts that are on that space station at a certain point in time when they're ready, load it into a launching vehicle and just shoot them out. Yeah. So now the space station, yeah, you're literally, right. they have the they have these dispensers now on the station, wow. and they'll launch you out of the <laughs> the, the the vacuum door on the space station. <laughs> nice. Uh, the astronauts will put you in a Deploy dispenser, the satellite. <laughs> put you out kind of like a Gatling gun. They're spring loaded dispensers that okay. uh, um, they look like a, like a jack in the box. They have a spring in the bottom. You put the satellite in, stick it out the door, and then they <laughs> open the the mech, the the release mechanism, and the Just satellites boom. pop out. Yeah. And so that's how they deploy them. Really easy to do, mm-hmm. low overhead. And so it's a great opportunity for students or yeah, for say. small businesses that are um, inexpensively getting their satellite into orbit. And I think it's, it's easy to take for granted 
having a standardized size because you, know, you figure, oh, I'm going to build my satellite. I should be able to do what I want. But by having that standardized size, it, it basically makes all this possible because if some of them were much bigger or smaller, then it just make everything way more complicated. Right, right. And, and there's a, um, an advantage to the launcher, too. If, uh, for example, your payload's not ready when you planned because you had a setback or you're mm-hmm. just for whatever reason your schedule didn't match up, there will be another payload provider that is ready to step into your place and take advantage of that, okay. that uh, launch opportunity. Everybody's all on the same page. Yeah, everybody's on the same page because so, of the standardized size. So you're looking at that 10 by 10. So if I'm looking at it, I'm guessing just possibly like the size of a loaf of bread. What does that look like? I've seen some with it looks like almost solar panels on the yeah, sides. Yeah. So. so 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters is about the size of like, um, you know, compact discs come in a jewel yeah, case. Yeah, exactly. They're about that CDs. 10 by 10 square CD. So when you stack up about mm, 15 of those, you have a you would have a cube about 10 by 10 by 10. Okay. Or the size of one of those small Kleenex dispensers, not the big okay. Kleenex dispenser, but the, the, the little the, one. The that fancy you put, cube ones. Yeah, the fancy cube With ones. Lotion. That's about 10 <laughs> centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. So okay. putting three of those together, you've got like a large shoebox. Okay. Um, and uh, so that's about the size. What do they look like? Well, they can look like whatever other than want. other than the fact that you're limited to that size. You, you they look like whatever you've designed them to do. So you may have solar. Uh, you will likely have solar cells on the outside mm-hmm. so that you can generate power. Okay. But you may have an antenna attached to the outside. You may okay. have solar panels that spring open so that you can have a larger um, surface area for collecting solar energy. Okay. You may have new. There's some new designs of CubeSats that have large antennas that spring out and will unfold so that you have a larger antenna area. So you can, as long as you're inside that standardized format, you do what you want as a satellite designer. And then for like the innards of it, I've heard of people using basically small computers like a Raspberry Pi or a small thing that you can kind of program it to do. Yeah, it just so happened that there used to be a computer, well, still is a PC-104 computer circuit okay. board standard that happens to fit into that 10 centimeter size yeah um but there's nothing stopping you from putting anything else you could put like you said a raspberry pi or a yeah. bone black or in the case of phone sat nasa aims a couple of years ago okay. launched three cube sats that had uh that had uh, smartphones inside of them they had an nice. android operating system smartphone with the cover removed <laughs> but inside of a 1u cube sat okay. that served as the controller for the CubeSat. Oh, wow. And you're saying it's like anybody from like NASA Ames, some teams here at NASA could be creating these and making these for, for a project, but also just like high school students or yeah, universities, so small businesses, startups. It's anyway. really great because there's now an industry of companies that are selling parts for CubeSats. So you don't have to wow. build it from scratch. You can buy the frame. You can buy solar arrays. Okay. You can buy the plug microprocessors. It's m- kind of plug and play. <laughs> yeah. You can buy the power supplies and the radios and everything else and put them together. Maybe you're just writing the software or you want to do okay. something unique maybe with just the radio, but you're not interested in building your own microprocessor so you can um, go to the catalog and buy these parts and put them together that makes it really accessible for engineering students in the university level or even like you said high school students are launching their own CubeSats and this isn't just an American thing but Mm -hmm. there are students all over the world who are building their own CubeSats and it's you know for can you imagine when I was 
in university, <laughs> the idea that I could put, a put together my own satellite <laughs> and see it launched in the period of time of, you know, let's say my senior year would be inconceivable, but now it's within reach of a university student. I remember kids putting together, you know, model rockets, and you're all excited because it, like, it takes off, you see it go, and a little parachute comes out. Yeah. But nowadays, kids get to build their own satellites I know. As, I, a, yeah. as a school science project. Yeah. So, um, so what are some of the cool things that you've seen these things do? Where, what, are the, what are the different range of, um, I don't know, functionality, I guess? Yeah, or? so primarily... CubeSats, because they're limited as the, to being secondary payloads in, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, unable to afford their own launch. So they're stuck in low Earth orbit. And um, so most of the CubeSats that you see are designed to be technology demonstrations. Okay. Uh, to date, primarily CubeSat developers have been focused on what can I do with the technology that expands the capability of a CubeSat? Okay. They're really small. They're very. It's a very new um, form factor or standardized um, yeah. um, satellite. And um, trying to compress all the stuff that you would do in a large conventional satellite into the small format yeah. is a technology trick. And that's where been, most of the energy has been focused so far is getting doing the engineering to get all of that functionality into a small size making the radio work well yeah. making a camera work well this kind of thing cuz it's it's no fun to have a satellite up there if you can't like somehow talk to it and yeah, figure yeah. out what so, it's, so, it's seeing and doing so 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 cubesat developers are sending pictures down to earth and things like <laughs> that in fact there's a commercial company that is making cubesats that just take pictures of the ground and and They've got a, a large number of CubeSats that are in the orbit right now, mm-hmm. and they're taking photographs of wherever they happen to be uh, crossing over the ground and sending those photographs t- to the ground as a um, as a product to sell to customers. Oh, wow. But that's not where CubeSats are going to stay yeah. now. Um, in say within the uh, recently within the last year or two. Um, CubeSat developers are starting to look at what can I do for science? What can I do with these CubeSats that are useful to, um, say, produce data that's never been seen before? Okay. And so there are things you can do with a CubeSat that you can't do with a single conventional satellite. Okay. Um, And examples include in low Earth orbit, if you're trying to measure the effects of the solar wind on the Earth's atmosphere, Mm -hmm. you can do that with a conventional satellite, but you're only getting one data point. You're looking at one spot in the atmosphere. If you take three inexpensive CubeSats and deploy them and send them out one at a time, and you measure the the interaction, they're following each other. So now if you're measuring the the same phenomenon, the interaction of the solar wind with the upper atmosphere, you got three data points that are distributed in space, taking data simultaneously. So you can see phenomenon that are changing in Mm -hmm. time distributed over a larger area and you can do that with a set of inexpensive cubesats that you can you know take uh, where that you can't do with a single conventional satellite not even stopping at three you get to like 10 you have even more just it just builds so after they've been in orbit they take their information do they for the most part just 
burn up as they get yeah. closer to the Earth, or how does that? So, so by law, um, <laughs> CubeSat oper- satellite operators are required to um, show that they will n- once they're no longer in operations, they must come down and burn up in the atmosphere within right. a limited period of time. It's twenty five years. This is um, a, a um, international treaty agreement okay. to limit the amount of debris yeah. that's in orbit, and so that's easily done if you. Um, your CubeSat's going to run out of battery or it's going to eventually it's going to wear out. or yeah. um, And then it'll naturally decay its okay. orbit in the Earth's atmosphere because of atmospheric drag. But you need to, before they will allow you to launch, you have, you to, have show to show by that analysis that your satellite comes down in a limited period of time. Wow. Okay. So um, what, do you, what do you see as kind of the next To date, CubeSats have mostly been limited to low Earth orbit. So um, we want to see CubeSats go where no CubeSat has gone before. (laughs) Nice. We think that CubeSats have a mission to play in deep space. Mm -hmm. Um, CubeSats that are able to, for example, go to Mars. Um, Wow. CubeSats that can – we can drop – because they're because these CubeSats are inexpensive, they're small, mm-hmm. lightweight, and affordable. Generally made of commercial off-the-shelf parts, uh, we can afford to uh, launch and uh, yeah. deploy a number of them for an affordable price. Yeah. Um, for example, if you want to um, observe. Let's say you want to look at wind patterns and barometric pressure on Mars. Okay. With a single satellite, you can do that. With a, with an ensemble working together yeah. of multiple CubeSats, you can drop your satellites at different um, different uh, latitudes on the Martian surface. Now you're taking weather measurements of a weather system at multiple wow. points at the same time, and you can do it affordably with these small CubeSats. But the limitations are that that's only one example yeah, of yeah. how you would use CubeSats in, uh, for a deep space mission. Okay. Other examples would be you can go to a near-Earth object and take stereoscopic images with two CubeSats okay. or put them in orbit right, and measure yeah. the mass and the distribution of mass of an asteroid or a near-Earth object. You can use them to, um, to do a number of things affordably in deep space that you can't do with a conventional satellite. So for the CubeQuest Challenge, how do people get involved in that? Is that like a student thing, or is this like companies? Or um, The CubeQuest Challenge is open to any U.S. citizen or permanent resident or a U.S.-based entity, such as a university or a small business, okay. that wants to enter to compete in the CubeQuest Challenge. Um, the um, CubeQuest Challenge is uh, has two tracks. There's a series mm-hmm. of ground tournaments that take place on the ground okay. leading up to the Exploration Mission 1. EM-1 is scheduled to launch in 2018. Okay. EM-1 will be the first lunar flyby of the Orion capsule deployed from the SLS. Yes. It's an uncrewed, unmanned uh, okay. flyby of the, of, the, uh, of the moon. So it'll be the first time that the Orion capsule uh, is de- goes to the moon and returns. Okay. And the exploration program said, re- uh, de- decided that they would, were going to allocate some space for CubeSats on the SLS during the EM-1 mission. So they allocated three of those dispenser Uh slots, they have a total of 13, um, to the Centennial Challenge Program to come up with a competition that would make (laughs) good use of these three CubeSat slots. 
Um, so they said, here's three slots on the on the EM1. We're going to the moon in 2018. <laughs> what can you do useful stuff with nice. these three CubeSat slots? So that's the CubeQuest challenge. We went away and um, determined uh, what kind of what kind of achievements do we need CubeSat mm -hmm. developers to demonstrate that will ultimately uh, expand the capabilities of CubeSats yeah. for their application in deep space? NASA believes that in the near future, CubeSats will allow NASA to do science and exploration missions mm -hmm. more affordably uh, because of their small mass, yeah. their small weight, and, uh, and, sh and short development cycles than we can do today. And they may even serve as precursor missions for man's journey to Mars. Okay. Um, however, CubeSats have these limitations that we talked about. To yeah. date, they've only been in use in low Earth orbit. So that means, typically, they don't have any propulsion. Typically, yeah. for navigation, they either use the Earth's magnetic field or they use GPS. Yeah. But when you go to Mars, there's no magnetic <laughs> the, the, field. The signal's really bad. There's no <laughs> GPS, so <laughs> you're going to get lost. You're going to get lost. You need a map. You need some way of doing yeah, navigation where you are. outside of the out beyond Earth without GPS. Wow. Um, other challenges to CubeSats today include thermal management. They're really small, okay. and they, um, because of their small size, they tend to accumulate heat. In low yeah. Earth orbit, that's a different environment than when you're going into deep space. Yeah. You're going to need to manage your um, power and manage your uh, ability to dissipate heat in a way that you don't have to do yeah. in low Earth orbit. Um, other challenges, and this is the big one. Okay. In low Earth orbit, all of your ground receiving radios are not that far away from your CubeSat. So yeah. you can transmit using Relatively. amateur radios or you can transmit to low power and uh, receivers using okay. a low power transmitter and low gain antennas. When you get to distance of the moon or Mars or beyond, you're gonna need to be able to communicate from those much greater distances, which is a big challenge. Okay. Um, you're gonna need to have higher powered transmitters, higher gain antennas, and you're gonna have to have a bigger antenna yeah. on the ground to hear from your CubeSat. So those are the kinds of obstacles or let's say um, design challenges yeah. that a CubeSat developer is gonna have to overcome if, if NASA will you be able to use CubeSats um, for deep space mm -hmm. missions like going to the moon or going to Mars. Wow. So, okay. So we haven't even scratched the surface. Um, but if you know somebody who's listening wants to dig around, find out more about the CubeSats, more more about the challenge, or just about small sats in general, where's the best place to go to? They can go to the CubeQuest website, which is www.nasa.gov/cubequest. Uh, sorry, CubeQuest Challenge. Nice. Slash details like when in doubt they can type in cubequest challenge into a, your favorite search engine google cubequest <laughs> challenge yeah and, and figure that out awesome and if for anybody who has questions for jim we are on twitter at nasa ames we are using the hashtag uh, nasa silicon valley this is fascinating we need to have you back to talk more about this yeah i'd be glad to come back excellent well thanks for coming jim thank you